From the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin, welcome to an episode of Policy in Pieces. I'm your host, Scott Bogus. It's unrealistic to expect that we simply, in the end, would be able to sort of do an analysis where we quantify all the costs, we quantify all the benefits, we add them up, and then the policymakers just execute sort of the recommendation, right? That's not... I, I don't think that's feasible when it comes to economic policies or financial regulation. That was University of Chicago professor Christian Lloyds. He's the senior editor of a top accounting journal and one of the most influential academic researchers when it comes to informing financial market regulation. The SEC has cited his published work as evidence in 19 different policy actions. That is more than any other academic researcher on the planet. In 2018, he wrote an article on evidence-based policy and what financial regulators can do to have more of it. That's the basis for this episode. We talk with Christian about the challenges of producing policy-relevant research, what regulators can do to facilitate more and better data, what academics can do to generate more reliable results, and the infeasibility of expecting that scientific evidence will yield simple and easy answers for market regulators to implement. My co-host today is McCombs PhD student, Min J. Kim. Christian, hello. Hi, good to be here. Uh, Min J. Kim, he's an accounting PhD student here at the University of Texas. Say hello. Hello, thanks for having me here. So Christian, as we were preparing for this show, you mentioned that you gave a seminar at MIT yesterday. How'd that go? I think it went well. I got super helpful feedback and it was like a super early paper and uh, that often is kind of the right time to shop papers around. So I'm curious, in the pandemic, seminars work differently. I'm assuming you didn't go there live. No, it was over Zoom, like everything at the moment. It, it has some advantages. I mean, at the moment, I think everybody's craving real workshops, but what is nice is my co-authors, for instance, were able to join from Frankfurt, which is not something that you could normally have. But it's not the same if, if you're not in the room with people and you don't get to meet people for half an hour, you know, after the workshop and catch up on, you know, their research and so on. So it, it still feels quite different. Yeah. So you, you just alluded to something there that maybe most people don't know about. But when an academic goes to give a workshop someplace, they give a seminar, they present a paper and they get feedback. But it's not just that. You you hang around and you meet with people one on one or one on two and have lunches and you're now doing that over Zoom. A little bit, but I think at this point, everybody is uh, having some Zoom fatigue. So we've shortened our schedule. MIT did the same. So we had some meetings before and after, but not really as much as we normally do. Normally, it's like a full day and it's literally half hour meetings back to back. So let's uh, let's talk about you for a second, your area of research. It's uh, at the intersection of finance and accounting. Uh, we actually came to know each other because... When I joined the SEC, it seemed that you were always making appearance to discuss one or another of your papers. And here at our policy center, we're, we're now keeping track of academic citations in the Federal Register, and in particular, SEC rulemaking. And according to our latest counts, the SEC has cited nine of your papers a total of 26 times. And I think that's probably an underestimation. And that also puts you at number one, you're the most influential academic researcher in SEC rulemaking. That's pretty amazing. And so my first question for you is, do you write your papers with a regulatory audience in mind? Why is it that they cite you so much? 
Yeah. So why, first of all, wow, that's that's very exciting to hear. I mean, I, we had talked about the fact that the SEC had cited my work when you were still at the SEC a, a while back, but I didn't know that your policy center is now uh, keeping track of uh, of the citations, and it's obviously great recognition of my work and other people's work when they when they get cited and used by the regulator. It's also, in my mind, actually an interesting question because you said, you know, I'm the most influential academic researcher. That that I'm not so sure, right? It's an interesting question whether many citations equate with influence. Uh, it certainly means that the research has been useful, uh, but it, it might be that in the end, I was providing the kind of evidence for policies they were already, you know, implementing. In that sense, I didn't really influence the policy. And But it's still, in, in my mind, good to know, and I'm, I'm, I'm proud to hear that. Now, in terms of do I write papers with a regulatory audience in mind, I don't write them for the regulator or to support particular rules or regulatory changes. The goal is first and foremost to kind of advance our understanding. And, and so the primary audience is probably research and, and, and researcher. But of course, you know, I'm aware that the evidence could be used by regulators and sometimes, or I would say in my case, and that perhaps explains why the work gets often used and cited, is the papers are motivated by regulatory debates. So there are new rules, there are new regulations, there are certain debates, and then we find that inspirational and, and conduct research on these issues. And, and so in that sense, I have a regulatory audience in mind, and we discuss often the regulatory importance of, of say, the findings in the paper. Who, who is the we? Is that you and your co-authors? That would be me and my co-authors, exactly. Well, I mean, I think it's probably true for many others, but I don't want to speak for everybody. But uh, the we was so the we was the, 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 the co-authors because most of my papers are uh, co-authored with other people. So in that sense, I, I share uh, the recognition with these others. So I'm wondering also, you're at the University of Chicago. You often hear this phrase, the Chicago School. I think it's used adjectively to describe like a paradigm or a way of thought. And I'm wondering if you could explain what that paradigm of way of thought is and whether or not that has some influence on how you conduct your research such that it is interesting and relevant to regulators. Yeah. So you would think that I should know that given that I'm at the University of Chicago, but there's probably many different definitions and associations with this term out there. And so in that sense, there's probably not one definition uh, I'll give you sort of how I think about it today, but let me first say a little bit about how it came about. So to my understanding, the term was originally coined in the 50s to refer to a different way of thinking about economics and also law and that was present at the time at the University of Chicago. So it was at the time sort of in the thinking was in contrast to dominant the Keynesian view and it developed what we call price theory, which focuses on markets, prices, incentives. And of course, the term is like very closely associated with Milton Friedman and George Stigler. And they were probably the two, you know, sort of main or best known figures and, and, and their contributions have, have popularized uh, the, the Chicago school. But I think over time, a lot of people have also associated ideology with the term. And so this is not how I would define it. So I th I'd say over time, the meaning for me at least has shifted. And nowadays we often speak about a Chicago approach at Booth, for instance, with also with our students. And here what we mean is a discipline-based analysis of problems 
or a formulation of questions that's sort of deeply rooted in empirical analysis and data. So markets, prices, incentives, they still play a huge role, but not in an ideological sense. So we're not necessarily pushing certain, uh, you know, a certain ideological view. It's more uh, that the data and the evidence are very important. And I feel that Chicago and the Booth School are very much about this empirical ap approach is sort of letting the data speak, answering questions with data. And you see this also in our faculty discussions, not just in research, but also when we talk about our curriculum, when we talk about uh, our own affairs on, and how we should make changes uh, at the school and so on. In 2018, you wrote an article titled, Want More Policies Based on Evidence? Question mark. What inspired you to write your article? What was the message you were trying to give? And how much of that was based on all of your research that you had done to date, neither what you accomplished or frustrations in what you couldn't accomplish? So the genesis of this piece in the Chicago Booth Review was that that's a short version of an article that I wrote uh, for accounting business research as a result of a keynote I gave in London. Uh, so I gave a keynote for the Institute of Chartered Accounts of England and Wales, uh, and they have an annual event, and they had picked sort of regulation. And at that point, we were thinking about, well, what could I, based on the research that I'd done, and I'd done a lot of work on regulation, this seemed like a good topic to reflect on. I wanted to do something new that I hadn't sort of, I hadn't thought specifically about evidence-based policymaking that much. And so the, the keynote became kind of the impetus to uh, think about it and then also reflect about my own research and research in the area that I'm working on, so say financial regulation, accounting, and what it has to say about financial uh, policies and financial regulations. And so the title that you were alluding to was kind of a bit more provocative in this or, or meant to be provocative in the sense that a lot of people are subscribing to the view of evidence-based policymaking. A lot of the regulators, the standard setters in accounting, they're all using some version of this term and say that's what they, they do. But then what I was trying to ask is, do we actually live up to that ideal or th this idea of evidence-based policymaking when it comes to, say, accounting standard setting or financial regulation? And what the article, both in... ABR and the Chicago Post Review article, the short version, point out is that we're probably quite far from that ideal. And so what I looked at is I look, took medicine as a reference. So there's the term evidence-based medicine, and it's been incredibly successful, and it's considered one of the major innovations in, in medicine and, and it's changed medical practice. And so I was using that sort of as a relative standard or comparison and to kind of point out that uh, we're probably in many places paying more lip service to the idea and that it's much easier said than done. So I definitely want to get to that medicine aspect. I've got a couple of questions for you on that. But I'm wondering just at a, at a higher level, when we use the term evidence-based, is there some threshold that we need to be mindful of on what that actually means? And, and like in the context of you know, academics, we think about peer-reviewed research. Uh, is there any standard that we should think about when we say evidence-based? 
Again, I think here I want to uh, draw a parallel to to uh, medicine. I think when they aggregate research, they think very carefully about the standard of evidence or the quality of the research or the methods by which the evidence has been produced. And so in that sense, you you can't have different standards of, of evidence that you take into consideration and you can adjust the weights, how much weight you put on something that's been produced uh, in a, a randomized trial versus something that is based on observational data and, and maybe doesn't have the same sort of causal implications than uh, the trial might have. But generally speaking, I would say what differentiates the, the academic research is that we have with some variation, a shared understanding of what constitutes kind of acceptable evidence. And, you know, it's the the 5% uh, statistical significance, but also the way we go about in producing our research, whether a study kind of is up to the current standards. And that's standard, generally speaking, in academics is pretty high. And one thing that differentiates, I think, academic research fundamentally from policymaking is the time dimension, right? So in in politics and in policymaking, time is of the essence, and oftentimes things are topical. They're 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 popular at the moment, or is something an issue that needs to be resolved. And as a result of that, you need to assemble the evidence relatively quickly. And so in that sense, evidence gets used in a much looser way, where these may be sort of research that's loosely connected and helps uh, in motivating or arguing for or against the policy. Whereas in academe, the time is not the matter. We're given often years to conduct our, conduct our research. And as a result of that, we can kind of have a much more rigorous standard in terms of what we actually call evidence. So going off of those different standards for policymaking versus academic research, uh, what do you think is the role of academic researchers in shaping policy decisions in general? And more specifically, is there a responsibility of academics to help shape policy? So first of all, I think it's very important for us as academics to realize that we're not driving the bus, right? Or we're not the pilot flying the plane or making the decisions, right? We, In my mind, our role is that we can be advisors, that we can inform, we can help with the trade-offs. But in the end, the policy decisions are decisions that should be made by policymakers. Most of the time, these are people that are uh, democratically elected or they're appointed by people that are democratically elected. And that is because the policy decisions very often require value judgments. They require interpersonal utility comparisons. So, you know, making one group better off and one group is potentially made worse off. It's rare that, you know, a policy means that we can make everybody better off and it's a Pareto improvement. And so as a result of that, it is fundamentally a political issue. And in a democracy, we're resolving that by uh, having policymakers make these decisions. So in that sense, the, the, the role of the academics and, and the academic research is more on the advisory, on the informing side. The policymakers still need to make expert judgments, uh, if you wish. You're the senior editor at a top accounting journal. Can you maybe just give a brief overview or description of what role you play and what role other editors play in the production of research that can ultimately inform policy? 
Yeah, so uh, we are, the senior editors are uh, four people from Chicago and three people from other schools, MIT, USC, and uh, Wharton. And each of us makes editorial decisions about papers, which means we pick reviewers. Uh, we also have so-called associate editors. So uh, with manuscripts, we might actually assign the manuscript first to an associate editor. The associate editor might do a first screen of the paper, uh, whether the paper should be going forward at the journal. And then if we decide, yes, this should be uh, reviewed, then uh, we decide on a reviewer or two reviewers. And then when the reviews come back, and then the, the senior editor typically makes the, the, the final call on whether a paper is rejected or receives a, a revise and resubmit or an acceptance. So as the editor, do you think explicitly about the impact that a paper will have on non-academics and policy specifically? I would say yes and no. In the, in the, so it's, it's not that we require policy relevance um, and say if something isn't relevant to policy or practice, that therefore it's, it's not publishable in the journal. We do care about papers being impactful and shaping views and moving priors, but that could be shaping views and, and priors of um, other academics. And there's a lot of importance to just sort of basic research, figuring out some of the basic things in, in our field. But a lot of papers do speak to policy issues. They motivate their papers, like I was saying for my own research earlier, with policy issues or certain regulations, and it's part of their contribution. And one of the most important things we as editors assess is the contribution. How big is the, is the contribution of the paper? An important part of the contribution could be uh, the policy relevance, but it's not something that we impose, but it, it, it very often is an added benefit to the paper that it makes an important point about a uh, debated issue. Uh, it, it changes our view on maybe whether a certain rule was or was not a good idea. And so in that sense, it is part of the process in our consideration. So let me ask the question a little bit differently. And just speaking from the regulatory side, having been there for a long time, we would often find research that we thought was relevant to a policy issue. But when you read the paper, you would have no idea the authors thought it would be policy relevant because they never talked about the policy aspects. Do you think that there's greater scope for academics to think about how their research could be applied, maybe in the conclusion of a paper, or is that something they usually refrain from because they believe, well, I did my part. Somebody else needs to think about how it can be used for policy. So this is a this is a super interesting question, and and I think also a very important question. And there is a little bit of a um, a conflict or a trade off. As editors, we very often are careful, and so are the reviewers, are careful to to check that the authors with their paper don't step way outside the bounds of what their paper can actually say and support. And so we rein in when the authors at the end uh, were to go too far in terms of like what this all could be speaking to, and to some extent tell the authors to leave that to others. At the same time, we do want the papers to have impact. And so we do want the authors to make connections and, and allude to where the paper could be could be useful. So it's a it's a it's a careful line that you have to walk in terms of not overclaiming uh, or or as an author say 
and at the same time making sure that people see where your paper is actually relevant. And so back to your question, where I see more scope is actually for more interactions between the academics and the SEC. And I visited many of the regulators over the years, and I've always found these exchanges to be really helpful and and useful also to my research process. And it's it's those connections. If we force them more, it, it would help researchers understand what's useful to the regulator, but it would also help the, the regulator understand areas of research that might be useful to them. But there needs to be another step in between that kind of takes the research and the research findings and aggregates them, packages them, and sort of shows to what extent they're relevant to certain policy issues. And that process should not be completely left to its own devices. That should be carefully thought about, designed. And, and that's one of the things that, in my mind, uh, is it's a critical piece we would need for evidence-based policymaking. So you, you spent some time at the PCAOB. Can you explain what you did there and how it influenced your thinking on evidence-based policy? Yeah, so I was a senior uh, economic advisor at the time. Uh, my colleague Luigi Zingales was there as well. We were both coming in roughly at the same time. Luigi's role was to build the Center for Economic Analysis. So under Jim Doty, the PCAOB decided that economic analysis should be an important part of the PCAOB, both internally uh, for their own policymaking and evaluation of their own activities, but also in furthering research on audit and audit oversight. And so Luigi was kind of the, he was the director of the, the, the CEA and uh, he was brought in to facilitate this uh, research. They were fellows that were being appointed. They created a fellows program where researchers would come and visit and work with their data. Uh, but also advise the board on rulemaking and their activities. And so I was uh, helping with the center, but was more involved in these uh, on the advisory side. So for instance, I provided some guidance in their first post-implementation review that they came out with, and we created a framework. We talked about the analyses. We thought about what data we would collect. Uh, and so I provided guidance and feedback for uh, that post-implementation review. And that's sort of one example. There were uh, several other projects, some of which are, are not necessarily public information. But I also provided some feedback and guidance to the researchers and the fellows, the research projects that were going on. So I think you mentioned Jim Doty. He was the chairman of the PCAOB. And I believe, if memory serves me correct, as part of the JOBS Act, there was a requirement that PCOB start thinking about the effect uh, of efficiency competition and capital formation on smaller entities. And as a result of that, they had to focus on economic analysis. And so what you just described seems to me to be an example of collaboration between government and academia, where Jim Doty had reached out and said, hey, can you help us think about these economic issues? And then you joined and, and had that sort of engagement. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, so how this actually came about is Jim and a team of the PCOB came to Chicago and met with me. So they, you know, went out of their way. They came to Chicago to meet. And it started with a conversation about evidence-based policymaking or basically Jim was asking, what can we do to perform economic analysis on our activities, on our rulemaking? How can we 
assess what impact we're having and what difference are we making. And and based on that that conversation, you know, he said, would you be interested in coming more regularly? And it was a fascinating experience and time. I learned a lot about auditing, but more generally about regulation and supervision. And what, what was special about these visits is I would come in for a day or two, and the same was true for Luigi, and we would meet with people in all kinds of people in the organization. It would be people from rulemaking at times. At other times, people from enforcement would want to speak to us. So it was really an an exchange of ideas and feedback. And what I learned from it is that it actually takes a commitment from the top of the organization to kind of make research an important part of the organization so that the input from researchers is something that the various parts of the organization are willing to engage in and, 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 and are openly talking, you know, to or, or with you. So let's uh, switch gears a little bit. And I want to talk about uh, one of your papers in particular that I'm familiar with and use that as an example, as maybe a segue to talk about how research can or can't be impactful to regulators. And it's, a, it's based on a paper that you wrote with Brian Bushy on OTC bulletin board firms. And I'll just mention a little side story here that when I joined the SEC in 2007, my first assignment was to write an internal referee report on this paper. It was handed to me and it said, please evaluate this and let us know what you think about this analysis. So that was my very first project in 2007 before the financial crisis uh, hit. So can you tell us a little bit about that paper, uh, how it came about and why you studied it and the finding? And your referee report probably said the paper should be rejected and should never have been published, right? (laughs) Too long ago for me to remember. (laughs) Yeah. So the paper came about, and, and I'll explain in a moment what it does, but he, I was working on questions of how information, and in particular firms' disclosures, affect the cost of capital. And, and this is, for many, one of the most central questions we have uh, in financial accounting and when it comes to financial regulation, because the cost of capital is the hurdle rate that firms use for their investments. And so to the extent that a, a uh, information disclosure affects the cost of capital, that is, is, is very important material. And if regulation then in turn in affects that, that would be an important thing to know and, and to understand. And prior evidence, you know, including some of my own, was largely based on voluntary disclosures. And so a firm decides that they're going to provide more information or they commit to providing more information in the future. But a key concern when a firm does that is that the firm does so in particular situations, like when they have new growth opportunities, they have uh, they need new funding, and then they come to the markets and they provide more information. And in those situations, it's very easy to confuse changes in the cost of capital that have to do with all these other things that are changing at the firm versus the new information that the firm was providing. It's a question of, can I actually pin the cost of capital response on the information, the additional information that the firm is providing the information? And so one way to address this problem is to actually study situations where firms don't have a choice. And so that is where mandates come in. And so I had identified a rule, the eligibility rule uh, in 1999, that was imposed on firms that were trading in the uh, over-the-counter bulletin board, the OTCBB. And those firms were essentially required with this eligibility rule to comply with the full set of SEC reporting requirements 
under the 34 Act, which basically means filing a 10K, providing an annual report to the SEC, and, and various other disclosure regulations. And so this was sort of a situation where firms were forced by the regulator. If they wanted to continue in the OTCBB, they had to comply with this regulation. It also fit my agenda of understanding the benefits of mandating uh, firms to disclose financial information. I had read a lot of the classics on the theory side. There's actually a lot of literature and law. Easterbrook and Fischel is, for instance, an example, a great article that talks about the various aspects of uh, the externalities that could come from forcing firms to disclose. So the idea that one firm discloses something and it is useful to also evaluating a bunch of other firms, and that would be basically be a positive spillover, and that could be a reason why actually a mandate could make sense. Now, you're referring to example and trying to project future free cash flows at companies, and if all companies have to report that type of information that can lead you to that, then you can see the correlation or covariances in those cash flows, and that might help an asset pricing model, which would then lead to better estimates of what the cost of capital should be for all firms? Yeah, what you just described sort of in plain English is actually a, uh, is also something that we then later actually formally showed in a, in a, in a model. But the, uh, the idea is exactly, it, more simply put, is like if Ford discloses some information, that often tells us something not just about Ford, but also about General Motors and some other, you know, the automotive market more generally, which could be relevant to suppliers of automotive companies. And so, but when Ford thinks about its disclosure decision, should I provide information, they think about what it is in it for Ford. They don't necessarily think about that it also helps analysts evaluate General Motors and the automotive suppliers. And so in that sense, they might not put enough weight on the public disclosure and that is one reason why it could make sense to mandate it, because the value to society and, and various other players could far be far greater than what it is to the firm. And those firms that were treated, so to speak, by the regulation were essentially not providing uh, information like an annual report. They were not filing with the SEC. So it was actually really hard. We tried sort of to verify, we verified that, that it was very hard to get information on these firms. And so in that sense, it was a massive shock to their disclosure that if they all of a sudden had to file with the SEC. And so what the paper shows is that firms that were actually already complying with the SEC rules that were not treated by this regulation were showing positive returns around the announcement of the regulation. And so that was some evidence of these spillovers and positive externalities. So just to rewind there for a second, so you had some over-the-counter companies that were providing the same type of information that exchange-traded firms reported. And as soon as the other OTCBB companies were required to report that same level of information, that actually helped those that already were. It, it was beneficial to them. Yes. So that result we showed in liquidity. So there were positive liquidity spillovers, essentially. So they were more frequently traded. It was easier to trade in these stocks. But we also showed at the announcement of the regulation when this rule was passed that these other firms uh, were showing uh, positive returns, abnormal returns relative to uh, we used as benchmark firms that were not in the OTC market overall uh, as a benchmark and showed that there were these these positive returns. So that was sort of an that was some evidence of these positive externalities on these firms, even though they were not directly treated. 
by the regulation because, as you said, they were already complying with SEC regulations and already providing their SEC filings. So this is evidence of positive externalities in markets, but you're at the Chicago School, so there is no free lunch. So there must have been a cost to this. What was the cost? So the, the, the cost, if you wish, were if you looked at the firms that were treated that had to now comply, they basically had a choice. They had to comply or leave. And so what we found is that overwhelmingly more than 60% of the firms actually left the market and traded down into what was at the time called the pink sheets and today are called the OTC markets. And those firms overall showed negative returns. And that would be consistent with them experiencing net-net sort of uh, negative benefits or, or costs. And that is despite the fact that the firms that chose to stay on the bulletin board, that they ended up having liquidity benefits. So what that shows is that newly compliant firms that do more disclosure exhibit liquidity benefits, and it shows the causal link to some extent between firms increasing disclosure and improving liquidity But that in itself is not enough to justify the regulation. Or based on that evidence, we couldn't say that net-net firms will benefit because there are potentially some costs as evidenced by the returns that we're seeing. So what are the costs? One example of this would be proprietary costs, right? And so but what we mean by proprietary costs is that when firms publicly disclose, the information doesn't just go to the investors it also goes to their competitors, it goes to their suppliers, it goes to their customers, and they could use this um, information to renegotiate, say, for instance, some of the supply contracts or the terms of trade that they have, where the competitors could use that information to kind of figure out what makes the firm profitable. So here, I just want to quickly mention a study that I've recently done where we studied um, reporting mandates in Europe where again, firms are being forced to provide information. And in this case, these are private and public firms that have to provide full-fledged financial statements. And we find that on net, that the amount of innovation that we see declines when more firms are subject to this regulation, suggesting that one of the costs could be that the spoils or gains from innovation become smaller as a result of providing more information to the markets. And that's something that firms need to trade off. And that can on net lead to less innovation in the economy. Right? So there are positive effects in that the information spills over to the competitors. But there's also negative effects in that it makes the focal firm, the one that has to disclose, less innovative. So if, if you're the regulator looking back uh, at this rule change in your paper, like, how do you evaluate it? Was this an overall good thing? Can we can we say that? Yeah, I'm glad you're asking that. And that's why I started the answering also the earlier question first with, again, highlighting the externalities, right? So there are some benefits and there are some costs. And the important question for the regulator is how do you, in the end, net those benefits and costs and how do you come to some kind of decision? And here, I think it's important to be realistic and acknowledge that we don't have the ability at this point to kind of net all the benefits and net all the costs and to say, this is what is, you know, the optimal decision and that this is sort of obvious. I think what the research can do and what 
is already pretty helpful is to give the regulator an idea what some of the costs and benefits are, maybe also a sense for the magnitudes of these costs and benefits. But in the end, I think it is realistic in areas like financial regulation and so on to acknowledge that we need some form of expert judgment where somebody in the end, a policymaker or a regulator puts it together and sort of makes a judgment as to whether the rule is worth having or the mandate is worth having or not. So let me put you on the spot and just, and maybe it's an unfair question, but uh, you're now uh, chair of the SEC and you're making the call on whether or not to pull a trigger on a rule like this. You know, if you'd had your study at hand um, when you were making that, it required to make that decision, uh, what would you have done? Would you have imposed the mandatory disclosure requirement? Or does this highlight just the challenges in a policymaker trying to make a decision with imperfect information? I mean, this is why I'm a researcher and not a policymaker, so I don't have to make these decisions. I think I would also say that there's a there's a quite a few more things that go into such a decision, right? Like, for instance, on the question of what are potentially some issues with having a market where you have very low disclosure and it could lead to pump and dump schemes? And what are some of the consequences of, of these pump and dump schemes for investors, for markets, so I think there's a number of other factors that would go into this decision, and you couldn't make that just based on um, some of the evidence we've just discussed before, before. And so it just highlights, I think, how complex these decisions are and why I was saying that you need expert judgments by the p people that are appointed into these positions in the end to make these kind of decisions, hearing all the different, you know, seeing all the different evidence and hearing the different voices. So you, you had mentioned that this was a retrospective review, and it's a popular phrase used by academics and also in government to think about what was the impact of a rule that was imposed. And I'm wondering if you could just comment for a second on the extent to which natural experiments are used like this in academic research, and are they used enough? Are there enough opportunities to do retrospective reviews like this? Like, what is the current state of academic research so I would actually define a natural experiment a little bit more narrowly. An experiment is where the variation is induced by the researcher. And a natural experiment to me would be where nature introduces the, the variation. So this could be weather or sometimes there's a, a lottery or, you know, things are quasi-random. So the dates when people are born. So it's been exploited when, you know, drafts into the military, depending on your your date of birth and things like that. So those would be natural experiments. Most of the time what we do is we exploit regulatory changes, like I was saying, because they force firms to do something. To me, those are not necessarily natural experiments, but they, they serve the purpose of experiments. So that's why I like your retroactive review better. They're, they're basically exploiting the, the, the regulation for research purpose. Uh, we're studying the, re the, the, the regulation but we're also using it in an hour advantage or two hour advantage to get away from the self-selection problem. Okay, so better better way to say it is it's a quasi-exogenous shock that firms have to respond to something that was not due to their own behavior necessarily, or not directly. Yeah, and, and, and a lot of the debate and then in the review process or when people workshop these papers is exactly over this question. Is it really exogenous to what extent you know, are there things that we have overlooked? And back to your original question, sort of to what extent people use it, do they use it enough? I think people are very well aware. And perhaps there's even too much chasing of 
a setting or a shock. And sometimes I, f- I find like people start with the shock. They identify some interesting regulatory change or some new rule. And then the, the second question is sort of what can I do with it? Rather than to say, here is a question that we've been trying to solve. And then we try to find a setting where we can actually answer that question. So speaking of those interesting settings, uh, has the COVID shock taught us anything about how we should pursue evidence-based policy in the financial markets? So there's a flood of COVID papers uh, and people are using the, you know, the, the COVID situation in all kinds of ways in, in research. I actually worry a little bit because I think the COVID shock highlights some problems with these regulatory approaches in the sense that, I mean, COVID was a massive shock and there were lots of things happening simultaneously and then lots of responses. And so I think there are settings or questions where COVID is really helpful. So for instance, for the question of working from home, you could have never gotten a a situation where that many people were all of a sudden working from home and had to work from home and couldn't choose to work from home, get away from the selection issue. So in that sense, it, it, it helps a lot. But for, say, studying uh, something on the banking side, say, or on the accounting side, you worry about how that you have so many moving parts at the same time that I think the COVID shock, while it will be used a lot, will also pose a lot of problems to the research in terms of can you in the end really say something causal as a result of that shock? So, that's a, so this is a nice segue then to a point that you alluded to earlier when you were drawing an analogy to medicine. So going back to your, your paper, you, you'd mentioned and made the comment that medicine is an aspirational example for financial market regulations. And you mentioned something called an RCT. And I'm wondering if you can explain that and explain how that might be used for financial market research. Yeah. So, so first, just the definition, RCT is a randomized controlled trial. And the idea is that the researcher designs an experiment randomly and there's a lot of thought that goes into exactly how the research gets, the experiment gets designed and, 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 and how the assignment works. But the basic idea is that we randomly assign people to treatment and control. And as a result of that, we don't have to worry about a lot of other influences because the randomization basically in the end will assure that when we see a difference between the treatment and the control group, that, that we can say something about the uh, the treatment that we were imposing on the treatment group relative to the control group. And that's, for instance, what we did for the, the COVID vaccines, right? We, we give people the COVID vaccine, the real stuff, and we give some control group a placebo. We track these people over time. And then I think for the COVID trials, severe a severe episode was the outcome that they looked at. And then we, we track to what extent that is more or less frequent in the control or in the treatment group, and then can say something about the efficacy of the, of the drug. And the same thing has been used in economics. There are randomized controlled trials. But the reason I said, or evidence-based medicine is an aspirational example, is first of all, evidence-based medicine is, at this point, decades old. They've had years of experience and it's been incredibly successful. So the the British Medical Journal, the BMJ, puts it as one of the greatest discoveries or or things in medicine up there with antibiotics, right? And what I think people have to realize that it took a lot of effort and decades to kind of make this happen. It was it was a team of researchers at McMaster's universities that sat down and said what what would it take? And then 
it was sort of a huge collaborative uh, effort to to make that happen. They created essentially an entire infrastructure. RCTs were an important part of it. They said, look, if we want to be able to give recommendations, being sure that we have causal evidence that we can actually say X causes Y, or it is better to do this in this situation, to give antibiotics or not give antibiotics is really important to have causal evidence. So that was an important part of their push. We have a lot less causal evidence or a lot less experimentation than they have in, in medicine. And part of that is it's just not feasible. Companies would not always be willing to let us experiment with some of their most important functions. The courts would not necessarily allow it. And in many cases, it might simply not be ethical. You know, so imagine, for instance, you wanted to find out whether you could better protect investors from participating in some shady pump and dump schemes in the stock markets, right, where people are pushing a stock that really is worth very little. You couldn't fake pump and dump schemes and do people into these investments to see, you know, why they invest and how you uh, could better protect them, because that obviously would be unethical. And, and in medicine, we have similar challenges in some areas. And so that is also why I think in some areas we've made more progress than, uh, than in, in others. And I think those are some reasons why I called it aspirational. Well, it's interesting that, that it is this way, because in medicine, we're experimenting with people's lives. Uh, and what we're talking about here is, is experimenting with their livelihoods. And in some ways, people would value their lives over livelihoods at a higher level, but we're fine experimenting with lives. And maybe it's because the outcome of not experimenting is, is so dire. And I'll, I'll just point out that the SEC has experimented in, in financial markets with pilot studies for many, many years and learned a lot. But to your point, uh, the most recent pilot study, the transaction fee pilot study, was actually struck down in the courts. And I think the court said, or the judges said, that even if the commission has authority to seek data from regulated parties, it does not follow that the commission may shock the market. And so I'm just wondering, is, you know, in your opinion, like, how do you think about that? Do you, do you, in a normative hat on, do you agree with the judge there? Or to what extent do you think there should be that type of experimentation where you can apply shocks to market to learn about its efficiency? Yeah, so this is, it, it, to me, I, it's a little bit of a, of a puzzle. And you alluded to this also in, in some of your comments before the question. Now, first, let me agree with the following. It, it is true that if you want quasi-random assignment, you in a way are arbitrarily assigning one firm into the treatment and the other firm goes into the control. And in that sense, it's arbitrary. And I think in a legal sense, the arbitrariness is often a problem because policies are not supposed to be arbitrary. They need to be fair. And so, and so there are certain legal standards that this may technically be problematic or, 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 or a run afoul. But I would argue that we can't have it both ways, right? There are a lot of concerns over regulatory burdens, stifling innovation, overshooting regulations, overreacting to scandals, and then imposing significant costs on firms. There are, and we know that, significant costs to poorly designed regulation, right? So if that's our concern, and that's sort of what you were alluding to, then I think we need more, that is more reason to study regulation and would also be a reason to say, maybe we should start with a small pilot 
to figure out how does it actually work? How costly is it to the farms? And in my mind, we can spread this burden around, right? So if the issue is that firms are already, you know, having a significant regulatory burden, well, then again, you pick a few firms, you don't do this for everybody, you start with a with a pilot. In my mind, the unintended consequences that we often point out in research and their high costs that we also point out are exactly why we need to invest in smarter rulemaking informed by evidence uh, and research. And so in my mind, you know, we can't say on one hand, we want this and we complain about the regulatory burden. And then on the other hand, say, yeah, but we don't allow you to figure this out. And in my mind, figuring out or cracking the nut of causality identifying the mechanism is really critical. And the same should apply to companies. We should say, look, if we're not so sure about certain things, we should be experimenting and trying to figure out that we understand the mechanism and what what we're causing with a certain rule. In your article, you highlighted several ways uh, that we can better enable evidence-based policy. Uh, and, And I think you started that discussion with the need for more and better data. Um, why is that so important? Yeah, so it might seem a bit surprising that I, I say that because in accounting and finance, we obviously have a lot of data, right? We have return with market data, with liquidity, we have firms, financial statements. But the need for better data is closely connected to the issue of causal inferences in research. And so in order to evaluate a, a potential mandate rule like we were just discussing uh, earlier, or even to prescribe a policy, we need to have a pretty good understanding of what the economic effects are. And so we need to know what the likely consequences are of a certain measure, rule, or, or regulation. And so when we say effects or consequences, that's a causal notion, right? It's this idea is like, if we put this rule in place, the following things will happen. And so, for instance, if we're thinking about disclosure rules, it would be important to know that increasing disclosure actually increases liquidity, that there is indeed a causal link. And that's what we discussed earlier, why, for instance, that OTC bulletin board study was important. Now, what that means or or illustrates is why the development of evidence-based medicine was so closely connected to the rise of RCTs, these randomized control trials, because randomization in many circumstances allows you to draw causal conclusions, which in turn then gives you confidence to say that certain treatments, be it medical or economic, have certain effects. So now back to your question why the data are so important. I think they're important because data are intimately connected to our ability to draw these causal inferences. The ability to establish causality or to draw a causal inference is fundamentally an information or a data problem. It starts, for instance, with the problem that I can't observe the outcome for the same firm or same company or same person with and without the treatment at the same time. It's just sort of impossible. And that's why we use random assignment, right? With randomization, we can be reasonably certain that there's certain, uh, that, that there isn't something hidden or omitted that's different about the two groups that receives the treatment, meaning the group that receives the treatment and the control group, which in turn drives our results, right? And so in economics, the problem is that especially say in financial regulation, that the rules and the mandates, they don't arise in a vacuum. They often come because we respond to market events. 
we deliberately want to impose the rules on certain groups of farms, but not others. You know, these groups and farms might then have incentives to avoid to be treated or they want to adopt early. And all of these problems, which in economics we call selection problems, they basically make it harder to draw sort of your causal inferences because the firms ha have incentives and choices to select into the control group or into the uh, um, treatment group for a reason or because of a certain characteristic. And then that reason or characteristic could also drive your results, which is why you can't sort of for sure say that something, you know, that X causes Y. And so fundamentally what data does, it allows you to conduct better comparisons, right? So we want the treatment and the controls to be similar. And so if I have lots and lots of data, it allows me to make better comparisons to make sure I can hold lots of these things constant and to isolate the effect of, you know, say a, a rule or a certain economic factor on an outcome. This is one of the most important reasons why data uh, is so uh, critical for evidence-based policymaking. So data is clearly important, uh, but then what are the current frictions with data availability that may impair the efficacy of finance and accounting research? There's sort of three that would come to my mind. Uh, one is that, as we discussed earlier, natural experiments and quasi-experimental settings allow us to overcome the selection problems that I just mentioned so that we can establish that there's a cause and an effect or estimate the economic consequences of their magnitudes. But there's probably not enough of these natural and quasi-experimental settings out there to answer every regulatory question. And this is one reason why I was saying also that we need experimentation, we need pilot studies, uh, so that th that should be simply be part of our repertoire if we're serious about evidence-based policymaking because that would help us with many of the open regulatory questions. The second thing is that identifying a causal effect often involves ruling out alternative explanations, right? It requires additional tests. So for instance, you would have to make sure that there aren't concurrent events that are responsible for the results. And so you need to test for these, potentially the role of these concurrent events. You need to understand how the result comes about. In the natural sciences or in medicine, to have a causal link and to, for it to be accepted, they generally require that we understand the mechanism, right? So it's not enough just to say there is a drug or there is some medicine or a treatment that cures a disease or that a certain environmental factor causes cancer, but we also need to understand how does it so, right? But understanding exactly how that happens, again, right, requires new tests, new data, more granular data so that we can study all the steps along the causal chain. And the same is true in financial regulation, which is again why you need sort of more data and particularly more granular data to, st to study the various steps. And the problem in that regard is that most of our financial and accounting data are highly aggregated. At the firm level, it's like based on thousands of transactions. There's many, many decisions, and that makes it just much harder to carefully identify the causal chain. I just want to unpack something there for a second, and I'm wondering, we haven't talked about theory yet, but how important is theory in understanding causal inference? So can you cut corners at all by theorizing a mechanism and then allowing correlations in the data to perhaps be stronger than they otherwise would be? 
I, I, yeah, I think that is also in part what we do with, with structural estimation, where theory plays a very important role. And uh, we can use theory also for the interpretation of the results that we're getting. So in that sense, theory plays an important role, A, in putting possibilities on the table. What are the potential outcomes? Laying out the mechanisms, right? That's the second reason theory plays. And theory plays an important role in the interpretation as well. So just to sort of mention the third um, friction, back to Minjay's question about the frictions, much of the relevant and granular data are proprietary, right? So the data exists within firms, by you know, are owned by the regulators, by say auditors, banks, and so on. And they're simply not publicly available. They're also often quite sensitive and confidential. So to me, that's another important impediment. And these frictions that we need to overcome if we really want to make some progress on evidence-based policymaking. So then what's the role of government regulators and standard setters in solving this proprietary data problem? First of all, government regulators, standard setters, they often have access to data and much more granular data as part of their regulatory oversight or the role uh, they play in, in regulating businesses. So one thing that they can do is make those data available. Now, an important issue here is, as I was mentioning, is the proprietary nature of data or the confidentiality. But not all data that we could use in research needs to be reported publicly. Right? We could make it available under an NDA or a confidentiality agreement. And that's what we do with some highly sensitive data, like the Census Bureau you know, has very sensitive uh, data from, from private companies that it makes available to researchers. The PCOB, which is the audit oversight body that we talked about, they also have very sensitive audit data that they share with researchers on audit issues, right? And there it's like very obvious to see why or how the regulator can help because audit processes are generally not publicly observable. So it's very difficult for researchers to study audit quality, but the regulator could request some of this information and make it available for research in an appropriate form which then would allow us to learn about audit quality in a way that we could never from public data because public data, you always commingle both the audit quality and the reporting quality that the firm brings to the table by reporting its numbers. So this takes us back to your visit to the PCAOB and working with them, but it seems to me that you would advocate more research involvement in the using of the data that's otherwise collected, for example, for supervisory purposes and using that type of information for drawing inferences out that are broader than just checking boxes for compliance. Do you have any specific recommendations on how to facilitate that? I mean, I think having academics sort of being when researchers being more involved in 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 those processes would in my mind be be helpful but you know the to the extent that the regulators have their own economics groups or like you know the PCAB that's the, the you know they had the center for economic analysis when when I was there I, I believe it's been renamed since uh those arms or those units could of course do it like you know within the SEC there's you know, the, the unit that you were the deputy, 
they can engage in these uh, activities as well. So, and they're often staffed by academics. So in that sense, academics are involved. Maybe one other thing that I've learned from the PCAO, my time at the PCOB is that it really is important to think about the data angle early on. So for instance, if you want to do post-implementation review or you want to evaluate policies after the fact, you need to ask during the rulemaking, what data do I need if the, you know, based on which I can later say that the rule or the standard worked or didn't work. You need to collect data up front so that you actually have a baseline, right? You need to collect the relevant data before and after the rule so that you can do studies. And so this is where I think the involvement of academics, whether they're employed by the uh, by the regulator or come from the from universities, doesn't matter so much. But where you need that academic input in, how can you then study um, uh, this uh, effect? So, for example, when SOX went effective, it was phased in by filer size. I don't think the regulator had uh, that in mind as being something that could be used for like a uh, discontinuity. Uh, regression analysis understand the effects, but in fact, many academics did. Uh, so what you're suggesting is maybe they should think about doing more things like that that would allow post-implementation uh, review by phasing in in certain ways, new regulations. Uh, absolutely. I think that, you know, the, these things are not panaceas. Uh, in a, you know, you could imagine how size could also be correlated with certain costs and benefits, but, you know, thresholds in regulation can be very helpful, as you pointed out, to researchers, as can be staggered implementations. So one of the key things that we were exploiting in the OTC bulletin board study that we talked about earlier was that it was phased in by ticker symbol. And the ticker symbols were chosen as of a particular date. So if you chose to change your ticker, that wouldn't alter when you had to be phased in anymore. And so then we were exploiting that sort of relatively random phasing in of the rule in our design. Right? But I think we can even go one step further. I think when we uh, consider new rules and standards, they actually should often come with data collection and record keeping requirements. And I know what companies are going to say or what you're going to say in response to that is that sounds like putting an even larger burden on companies because now they not only have to phase in a new rule and have to implement it, but they also have to keep some data around it so that we can study it. But I think what we have to remember here is that bad rules have unintended consequences or can have unintended consequences or negative consequences and have serious costs. And so if the purpose is to do serious post-implementation review and to find out what works and what doesn't work, we can't have it both ways, right? Then we need to sort of be serious about this type of analysis. And this is why it would be useful to then you know, collect some data around that, that we could um, study it more seriously, and we can spread that burden around. You don't need to have every company do it all the time. You know, we could tap companies randomly uh, for different rules. So it's it's really just not making data available for study. It's creating the data in the first instance by designing new regulations in ways that allows experimentation by providing data in ways that you can use it to draw potentially causal inferences. Right. Experimentation or, you know, post-implementation reviews or evaluations, right? And to give you sort of one more uh, maybe quick example is let's just say, um, and I think that will bring me back to also why I said granular data is going to be very important. 
So let's say you're contemplating a new rule on uh, asset impairment in accounting, right? So companies, they have to regularly check whether the book value for an asset, whether it, that is still the appropriate value. And if it's declined, they have to write down the asset uh, that they're carrying on their balance sheet, right? And so let's say you, you're, you think that the current standard doesn't work so well and you want to pass a new standard. If we now want to find out how the new standard is working, what the researchers later get to see is fairly aggregated information in the balance sheet, like the assets. We see maybe in the income statement a write-down and then some more information on the write-down than the notes. But all of that's going to be highly aggregated. But even if I see the impairment charge under the new standard, I also don't know what the company was considering and which assets did they look at and decided not to impair. Right. So if we now had a data keeping requirement that would then, you know, some of that data would be turned over to the regulator and sign an anonymous form that, that researchers or the regulator could study it, we could now ha have much more granular data that would help us understand what went into the decisions to either impair or not impair particular assets. And then that would also allow us to draw much tighter inferences that it was really because of the standard rather than because of some other environmental influence, because we would have data at a level where we'd be pretty sure that what we're looking at has something to do with that new standard. And that's something that we're currently lacking completely. Let's move on to something else that you talked about in your article. You wrote that there's evidence that replication rates in the social sciences can be quite low. For example, if one researcher produces a finding and then another researcher comes along and tries to reproduce it, sometimes they struggle and can't. Can you talk about that and the consequences for policymaking? This goes back to if we want to use uh, research in policymaking, then that research and the results of that research obviously need to be reliable. Right? That's a, that's a first order and really important if we want to base policy on on research results. Now, before I, I I get into the replication, let me just make one other comment regarding reliability, which is really important. Take something like the OTC bulletin board study that we talked before, right? The results of that study, as I was mentioning, were to some extent somewhat context specific because there was another market that was able to, you know, take in these companies that were uh, delisting from the OTC bulletin board. What that shows is that the results often are quite context specific or they have to do with the particular setting. So in order to have reliability of our results, we actually need many studies from different settings, from different angles over which we can aggregate so that we can learn also, you know, how reliable the results are, when are they stronger, when are they weaker. And so to assure that reliability is not just a matter of replicating existing studies, but also having a sufficient number of studies so that we can do maybe do some meta-analysis or that the regulators sort of sure that they're not responding to a single study with a single outcome. So can we, can we go back then? Because you've, you've talked about the Cochrane, uh, Cochrane collaboration. And can we, can we insert that right here, right now, and say, if we're piecing together a lot of studies to understand in aggregate what an effect might be to particular policy change, like, what do we need to do in academia, in finance and accounting uh, to get there? How can we replicate medicine? So first, let me first explain what the Cochrane Collaboration is. It's an independent organization that was formed to organize research so as to facilitate 
um, evidence-based choices in medical interventions, right? They produce practice guidelines on how to practice medicine. And these guidelines are developed based on a review and an aggregation of the existing evidence, right? And so that is how it connects to what we were just talking about, sort of ag aggregating, you know, a, a number of studies. And a, a Cochrane review is a massive effort. It involves many researchers and often aggregates, you know, over hundreds of studies. Uh, they gather all available evidence on a particular question. Often the, qu the questions are quite focused. There's a protocol they follow. They evaluate the evidence based on the strength. They look for bias. They look at the design. And then they summarize the evidence um, in so that it is sort of uh, understandable to and, 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 and usable for uh, the medical uh, practitioners. It illustrates what it really takes to do something evidence-based like they do in medicine. And I don't think we have anything close to that in finance and accounting. Right. In economics, there are so-called Campbell re reviews that try to emulate what the Cochrane reviews do, do in medicine. Uh, they're clearing houses for specific research topics, like, for example, in labor. But there isn't anything close to that in accounting and finance. And so to, we should see to what extent, uh, what can we learn from these examples? And also, what does it actually take to make this happen? And what this, I think, also illustrates is not enough to just produce academic research on relevant policy questions, but we also need to find ways to aggregate the research, to make it accessible to the policymakers, to help with the evaluation of the research. And here is, I think there's a big gap between how academics write their papers and the conclusions in the paper, and then what you could do with that evidence for a particular policy question at hand. And, and so I think we need to be deliberate about that transmission process for research to the policymakers, including sort of the potential influences on this process, including sort of the political processes. But it goes back to my sort of bigger and most important point, which is that if we want to make evidence-based policymaking sort of a reality, we need to be much more deliberate about it and build sort of an infrastructure around it that facilitates the process from the research all the way to uh, the trans, you know, from the transmission and then all the way to the policymaker that makes the decision. So what incentives exist for academic researchers to get involved in this process and to make their research more usable and accessible to policymakers who could benefit from that knowledge? So my sense is that researchers uh, care about relevance of their research uh, and not just for other researchers, but also to the policymakers, to businesses. They want to see it used or applied. And in that sense, I think they do have incentives to apply their research to policy or to help with the application. And as I was saying earlier, I always enjoyed my interactions with the regulators and the standard setters, and I learned a lot from them. Um, but it's important to recognize that there's other incentives, right? Researchers would like to get tenure. They want to be recognized in their field. They want to be cited. And not all of these incentives pull in the direction of policy-relevant research, right? And so to give you one example, uh, back to the point uh, about that we need reliable results and that many of our studies are context-specific and that we need lots of studies on the same problem from different angles, right? So think about this from the researcher's perspective, right? The problem is the credit goes to the first study on a particular question. And 
the credit that that first study goes is much larger than the credit that the 10th study or the 25th study on that problem is going to get. And the top journals likely won't publish the 10th and the 25th study, which then reduces, again, the incentives for the researchers to produce these studies in the first place. Now, in large fields with many journals, you know, where many of these journals are well-cited and recognized, it's less of a problem, especially when you have sort of specialized journals that people read and, you know, policymakers could go to. But in finance and accounting, I think the fields are is much smaller than medicine would be or some of the natural sciences. And so here we need to think about how we can encourage such research, whether it could be done by policy-oriented research centers, uh, economists at the regulators, or what other ways we find to get more of that research. Um, and again, that is saying that we need to make specific investments in economic research and build this infrastructure if we want more uh, of this evidence-based policymaking. So how do we how do we improve the incentives of academics uh, to be involved, or is that an intractable problem? Is it just the incentives to publish in top tier journals are going to keep them from writing the tenth paper and applying it to the practice and for policy? I mean, I think again, some some of it might in the end be uh, better done by um, centers like the one that you're building uh, at uh, you know UT. Uh, Austin, or uh, some of these studies might in the end have to be done within the regulators because it's particularly useful to their work, but maybe not as useful to the academics. But we can also create journals that are specific to these regulatory questions that would focus on them. And to the extent that these journals are recognized, researchers would have an interest. And I think we do have a lot of information and a lot of research that already is relevant. What I don't want to be misunderstood here is that ultimately policies are decided by the policymakers, but we can inform them and we can help them make better decisions. We can engage in discussions. And I think that's already often going to be quite helpful, but it's unrealistic to expect that we simply in the end would be able to sort of do an analysis where we quantify all the costs, we quantify all the benefits, we add them up, and then the policymakers just execute sort of the recommendation, right? That's not, I, I don't think that's feasible when it comes to economic policies or financial regulation. In the end, there's always a judgment that somebody has to make. And this is sort of also one reason why I, in the article, talk about this term evidence in foreign policymaking, because in my mind, that is more realistic. Kristen, you've been with us for far longer than uh, we had asked you to. You've answered a lot of our questions. And we really appreciate your time with us. So uh, thanks a lot for uh, joining our episode. Absolutely. Uh, pleasure to be here. It was great. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please consider rating it so that others can find it. In the true spirit of an academic exchange, we got into the nitty-gritty with Christian on the relevance of academic research in promoting evidence-based policy. And I find that, with polarized views across the political and social spectrum, the pursuit of sound policy is a topic that has never been more relevant. As I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, 
I've known Christian for more than 15 years, and I wasn't surprised to find, based on his body of research, that he topped the list of academic influencers on SEC policy. He has a nose for identifying questions that regulators find interesting and want to know the answers to. What some may find surprising is that an accounting scholar, and not one from a finance or economics department, is the top of the influencers list. But this, again, I don't think is all that surprising and highlights an important point that I think needs to be made. Accounting is the language of financial markets. It's used to communicate information necessary to execute important financial decisions. As a result, research on the efficacy of accounting practices is critically important to the well-functioning of financial markets. Our interview with Christian was long, and if you made it this far, then indulge me in one more comment related to an important observation made by Christian about the importance of randomized controlled trials in medicine and the Cochrane Collaboration, which distills research and evaluates approaches in medicine and practices based on it. We don't have an equivalent for financial market policy, even though decisions here can have as impactful of consequences. Instead of saving lives, policy decisions can save livelihoods. And there's good cause to look at medicine as an aspirational example for social science research. This is a production of the Salem Center for Policy, housed in the McComb School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin. This series is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The opinions expressed represent the views of the hosts and the guests, and not the University of Texas at Austin. The student producers for this episode are Zoe Tarr and Abby Sawyer of the Moody School of Communication. (laughs) 